What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. On the other side of the debt ceiling deal, how they got it done with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I think this was a turning of the ship, a movement in the right direction. I mean, think about what we were able to achieve. For one of the first times, we were going to spend less than we spent last year. Plus, the travel trends of the summer with Marriott CEO Tony Capuano. What's really encouraging to me, it's across every segment and really every part of the world. The recovery has been consistent. Everyone's got the travel bug and the spending bug. We just decided that there is no recession tomorrow or next week. Oil prices are rising. Stocks are rallying for now. So it's a weak bull market of that. I'm not feeling flush. And labor disputes are clogging shipping at one of America's biggest ports. But don't worry, robots could clear it up eventually. The robots will do it for you. We're going to need a lot of people taking care of those robots though, and watching their ass because I don't trust them. It's Monday, June 5th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Yeah, three of us together. Been a while, guys. It has. First up today on the podcast, an end to the bear? Friday's jobs number, showing an increase of more than 300,000 jobs in the month of May, it kicked off a broad-based rally that pushed the S&P 500 to its best week in months and its highest level since August. This puts the index of the 500 leading publicly traded companies in the U.S. on the cusp of a new bull market. Measured as a 20% gain from a recent low. And if we hit that 20%, we could end the longest bear market since 1948. So, good stuff, right? A catastrophic debt default averted, a banking crisis off the table. What comes next for our economy hinges on the Federal Reserve's target for bringing down inflation to 2%. It's still high above that. And if we can avoid a recession. Let's get back to Becky. So let me ask you guys, would you consider this, I guess, bull market, getting back into it, if you're exiting the bear market, if you get there, only about nine stocks in the S&P 500 have been responsible for driving all of the gains. Um, so it's a weak, weak, weak bull market of that. I'm not feeling flush. Um, and, and actually someone, you know, someone said, so how are you feeling about your 401k now? I don't hear much complaining. And, and I, but I sent that. I, a two-year chart, I go, I'm not feeling that great. I mean, um, <laughs> the, the two-year chart does not look good, but... But year-to-date looks better than... October lows are going to be retested. You remember the guy sitting right here? And he was really young, and he was talking about 3,200. He's predicting the S&P 500 will end the year at 3,225. That's really something. Joining us now is Michael Kantrowitz, Chief Investment Strategist, Head of Portfolio Strategies at Piper Sandler. 
as these hot inflation numbers of the past, uh, plus the Fed's tightening cycle, plus the fact that uh, banks have been tightening lending standards for well over a year, that combination has preceded every single recession. So for uh, we've got kind of the three ingredients uh, when you look historically that have been there before a recession. That's not news to anyone, what you just described. That's true. And they go, but what, because why? Well, uh, there's a recession. Okay, there's a recession. Well, earnings estimates are too. Okay, I well, got that. But you would have thought that given all the interest no, but, rate but, hikes that we were going that we were having, that and you were saying over and over, we were all saying over way, and over it again. Echoes what we've heard. I never really, really, guys like Sandra Miller and others. Come on, you, you thought you thought they needed to lower the interest rates or at least stop the interest rate hikes. That the interest rate Wait, hikes that were, is happening. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Well, like Santelli we'll said, he said, well, we're, it, you know, we're three six. I don't, well, like Santelli said, he, he thought the lows were in a while ago. I've never thought we were going to go back below. Th- I bet Elarian we weren't go- going back to 3,600. I've and never thought we were going to test side. those lows. No, 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 no yeah, and, on the and, equity you know, side. I should clarify, Drucker Miller has said more that you could be looking at flat but, gains for a decade. For, for a decade, yeah. exactly. Um, I'm not saying we're out of the woods either. Well, and the guy was from Stiefel, I think, who just definitively and just... You know, I may know nothing, but I'm never in doubt. Well, I remember talking, talking about to him after afterwards in the break, just kind of, are you sure about that? Right. Because so much, what some, and I said, what is that that we aren't anticipating at all is going to happen? That's going to take us back to 3,200 because we know the, the concerns are well known, and it still could happen. I'm not saying it's right. not going to happen. I don't. I'm not feeling Taking like victory lab. I'm not feeling flush, and it's nine stocks, like we said. Right. But do the rest. Does the breath improve and they catch up with the nine or did the nine Question. come back down? Back to the meeting, right. We will see. Let's talk about a big surprise uh, signal in the oil market. Uh, yesterday's OPEC meeting, the group made no changes to its planned oil production cuts for the rest of the year. But, and it's a big one here, Saudi Arabia announcing further voluntary output cuts in July. It will dial back its output from 10 million barrels per day to 9 million. Saudi's energy minister saying that the move was precautionary. OPEC Previously announced voluntary production cuts in April. The U.S. criticized that decision, so there's a geopolitical political issue here, uh, saying it would fuel global inflation. And um, well, Saudi sticking with its its own plan, uh, even if it may not have an impact on the rest of the plan. So that takes us from the high 60s back above 70. But do you think this is political? To me, that's the question. Uh, it, that right. and protecting their interests. They I think it's oil below. I think it's monetary. I think it's yeah. Trying to and, and you know the a lot of guys, a lot of OPEC guys did not want to cut Africa, for example. They need you know they need right. money. They need they need revenue, and you know you need to sell more at sixty eight than I guess you can sell a little less at seventy seventy two. But where we just decided that there is no recession tomorrow or next week. So what are they worried about? What do they know that we don't know? They know that, that when they look at oil prices and they fall below 70. Why? That's how, right. I know. Is they, there a recession? Is, there a, is Europe's 10%. weak? China's not well, back. China, you know, China's been part of the concern. But it, the manufacturing numbers we got last week for Chinese manufacturing were much weaker than anticipated. Yeah. Um, look, I think part of this, though, is interesting. What it means is that Saudi Arabia is a smaller and smaller player right. in production relative to what the United States is doing. We produce millions of barrels a day more than they do at this point. Yeah. Um, Marriott. Marriott's coming on. Yeah. Great day to have Tony uh, Capuano on. Lingering effects of pandemic stave off expected recession. People still spending. 
they, you know, that people still going to restaurants that didn't go during the pandemic. People still traveling, even though Europe's not back the to way, where it was. By the way, that's what the Fed looks at when it's yeah. deciding whether it's going to but, but raise that was, interest rates again. But that was a Goldilocks number on Friday. Yeah. There was no. If, if we had full employment. Spending, see, my, my worry is not that we're, we will continue to have some spending here, a lot of spending. In the, but it's like this, yo, it's still this YOLO spending. And I think if you talk to the bankers, they will tell you that people are going to run out of money and they're right. going to be living in some kind of actual hellish environment. I mean, it's a whole different, there's something that's changed in the psyche, I think, as a post-pandemic approach to life. People are still in this sort of YOLO feedback loop. But the, con the demise of the consumer, greatly exaggerated. Well, greatly exaggerated until it's not, though. Right. <laughs> it happens gradually to what happens all at once. We say that, say that more and more. I don't know. People really still want to go places, and it, I'm not it, saying they don't. No, no, people yeah. want to do a lot of things. But at some point, when the credit card company says you can't, it's going to be a problem. You would think that when you live at, at zero for so long, you can borrow a lot of money. You can't. It's not the same as it was. But uh, this is the most anticipated. Well, recessions are all. Whenever you anticipate one, it usually doesn't come. It comes when you least expect it. Long Beach, the largest uh, terminal at the port of Long Beach in California, won't open today as a, a result of labor disputes. The ports and the workers have been in contract disputes over wages, safety, pension benefits, and automation. Uh, now at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, no daily workers reported for work yesterday. Uh, union members have been accused of red tagging uh, equipment for safety checks, removing it uh, from service. No longshoremen have reported to work at the port of Oakland uh, since Thursday, that work slowed on expected to increase shipping congestion. This is one uh, tough remote work. Can't do it. This will never be a work from home. Three day week work, work week, and it'll never be a work from home. I don't think, unless you got like remote control things working all those. Not that's going to happen Robots, too. Robots? Why not? Ten years from now? Fifteen years from now? Sure. You won't even need to be doing it yourself. What are you talking about? The robots will do it for you. We're going to need a lot of people taking care of those robots so, and watching their ass because I don't trust them. Well, that's, that's a different question. I'm really worried. I'm really worried. I mean, all the things we have to do, all the, you know, just all the things that it means to be human. If you were just silicon, silicon-based, you don't have to go to the bathroom, you don't have to die, you don't, they won't need us. They will not need us. They won't like us and they'll be resentful. And Isaac Asimov was right, we better enforce those rules. Really worried. Cheese will be next. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have sealed the debt ceiling deal. So what's in it? Kevin McCarthy himself joins us. This is the biggest cut in American history, $2.1 trillion. The bipartisan negotiations, who's still bristling, and what's next for Washington? I think these are very healthy movements in the right direction. It doesn't solve the problem by any means, but it does put us in a new path of moving forward. We'll be right back with more Squawk Pod. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. 
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This is Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Q. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box. We're right here on CNBC Live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. Investors uh, breathing a sigh of relief now that a deal to raise the federal debt ceiling has been passed and signed into law. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy calling spending cuts historic, but some GOP lawmakers uh, wanted a lot more. Speaker McCarthy joins us now, and we heard it again and again. Uh, Mr. Speaker, we heard most recently from uh, uh, Mc, uh, Patrick McHenry. Uh, the, don't let the, uh, the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I guess uh, again and again, uh, that kind of describes uh, what, what happened to some extent. Well, thanks for having me. But no, I, I think this was a, a turning of the ship, a movement in the right direction. I mean, think about what we were able to achieve. For one of the first times, we were going to spend less than we spent last year. Uh, this, the Center for Fiscal Responsibility, this is the biggest cut in American history, $2.1 trillion. We were able to pull back the COVID funding that we had, the largest rescissions in American history. You can add up all the rescissions. This is larger than all of them accumulated together. Um, we, what you found going forward, NEPA reform, cutting the red tape where we're limiting the, how length you can study something so you can build it. I think you're going to see a growth in the economy based upon that. Uh, restructuring Congress in the point that I get so frustrated that we don't do the most basic things we're supposed to do, like our 12 appropriation bills. So we change the structure in that. If we don't get our job done, there's a 1% cut across the board. Everybody has an angst about that. Well, what that really means is it's going to force us to do our job. I think these are very healthy uh, movements in the right direction. It doesn't solve the problem by any means, but it does put us in a new path of moving forward. I wonder how we get to some of those goals. You wanted to freeze federal spending for 10 years. Uh, what we did get was non-defense spending flat in 2024 and an increase of 1% in 2025. So that, that's not close to what you'd like. And I, I don't know, how, you'd still probably like that, wouldn't you? And, and how do you, what, what do you do now? You caught the bus, you're the dog that caught the bus, now, now what? Uh, we still have major issues. We have major issues, but remember what we were dealing with, that we weren't able to look at the entire budget. We dealt all of this with about 11% of the budget. And what we did was we increased spending, to the, uh, increased spending on defense to the president's level. We increased veterans, but non-defense we lowered back below 22 levels. That was a goal to get back below 22. Remember, this is a bill that has to get through the House, the Senate, and signed by the president. In the Senate, we had a number of Senate Republicans that wanted to spend more money on defense. So we had a challenge there, but I think we thread the needle. We put caps on this for six years. So we didn't get 10, but we got six. 
Um, so there are a number of things we want in this process. What was really important is the president wouldn't even speak to us for 97 days. He wouldn't even negotiate. I, I watched your shows every morning. You'd have Republicans and Democrats on, and all the Democrats said this should just raise the debt limit and do nothing. We ended up getting the largest cut in American history, which is the right start. But there's so much more we have to gain. And what you really need to look at is the entire budget to do the job correctly and put us on the right path. Yeah, 90 days, and you, uh, you went back and forth with the president. Uh, then it was, uh, th this is from the White House, MAGA House Republicans Default on America Act. Uh, that's what they called it. Um, there were hostages taken. There were terrorist negotiations. I mean, the rhetoric was beyond belief. And then when it was all said and done, um, the president said that, wow, he, he couldn't have said nicer things about you. He said, wow, he, he negotiated a good faith. It was awesome. Uh, you were pretty complimentary, too. Uh, this seems like, the, is this the beginning of a beautiful friendship, to, to reference Casablanca? Uh, I don't know. If you're in the meetings, it's not always beautiful inside. You've got to fight for what you believe in. Uh, at the end of the day, we were able to come to an agreement, which I think is important for the American public. But I think, in the end, the American public won on this debate. But uh, they never wanted to negotiate with us, which I thought was the wrong position. Uh, when you look at the overall bill, there are no new taxes that the president wants. There's no new spending that the president wants. There's no new government programs that the president wants. So I thought at the end of the day, it was a good negotiation. I'm curious, and maybe, maybe you don't want to say this on the air, how much of the initial proposal uh, was a negotiating tactic, if you will, that there were anchoring devices happening on your side, and by the way, on, on President Biden's side as well, that made it look like you were super far apart and that that's what actually led you to get to the middle? Or did you look at the initial proposal as a genuine, not to say it wasn't a genuine proposal, but recognizing that there was going to have to be compromise to get there? Well, I always knew there was going to be compromise. Remember, Andrew, we only have the House by a five-seat majority. They have the Senate and they have the presidency. So it's very difficult as you're moving forward. Their whole plan was to take us to the brink and just raise the debt ceiling and dare us to go over the cliff. I thought a more appropriate way is to sit down and negotiate. That's but why speaker, I went to the president February 1st. Speaker, but, in fairness. Well, yeah, but all due respect, Andrew, let yep. me finish the answer to your question. When we passed the bill, Limit, Save, Grow, it was exactly what we wanted to get. We didn't go over the top. We literally said we wanted to go back to 22 levels. We want to cap it for 10 years. We want to pull COVID money back. Um, we moved forward. But I knew at the end of the day, I would not get 100% of that. But I wanted to base our negotiations off that bill. And that's exactly what we were able to do. That's the framework of the final bill. Um, and I believe at the end of the day, that was a success for the American public. I'm not public. sure it's the framework for the final bill. I mean, and, and maybe you'll think this is unfair. USA Today saying that initially, this is you, uh, McCarthy caved to the MAGA demands that produced this debt bill. That was the initial bill that would have, what they said, gutted much of what Biden accomplished in his first two years. But the final deal that the speaker hammered out with Biden was not close to what the MAGA lawmakers wanted. Now, I know this, this is the language of USA Today, but... But how do you react to that sort of um, description? Well, whoever wrote that article apparently didn't read the two bills. So let's walk through what the first bill says and the final bill said. Uh, 
We said we wanted to go back to 22 levels. I didn't get that on defense, but on non-defense, we got below that. We said we wanted to pull COVID money back. Well, we pulled all the COVID money back. We said we wanted work requirements. Well, we got work requirements uh, and welfare reform, but we didn't get it on Medicaid, so we got it on half and not on the full. We said at the end of the day, we wanted to pull back the IRS money. We didn't get all the money, but we got all the money, 1.4 billion they wanted to use for this year, and 20 billion going forward. So we got a big chunk of that. We said we wanted um, reform, especially when it came to energy. Well, we got NEPA reform for the first time in 40 years. We also got to limit the, the scope of how far we can um, study the programs. So I thought those were big successes. We wanted to rein in the president when he wanted to put new um, programs in and regulations called the RAIN Act. We didn't get that, but we pulled something from President Trump's executive order called PAYGO that he does pretty much that in the essence if it scores more than a hundred million dollars. So no, we, we frameworked around our entire bill. Did we get a hundred percent? No. So whoever wrote that article didn't read either bill to come to that conclusion. The, uh, I guess if you were a right-leaning um, caucus member in, in, uh, in your caucus, let's say you're a Freedom Caucus member, you'd look at sort of the embrace of, uh, of the bill by a lot of Democrats. There are a lot more Democrats that voted for it than, uh, than Republicans. And they would look at that and, and I, they'd probably say, see, they all like it. Obviously, we gave away the store. Uh, but on the other hand, in the past, I think none of these guys ever voted for a debt ceiling increase. And many of them did this time. What, did you get two-thirds of them rather than uh, in the past? I think some of them were 0 for like 100 on debt ceiling increases. There's some that who have never, and, and that's correct. And look, you're one of the smartest shows on TV. You study data. So let's study the data here. We ended up getting 67% of Republicans voting for this bill. But if you take the average of what normally Republicans vote for, especially when you have a Democrat president, it's about 24%. So you improved that, uh, you tripled your vote with that places. Now, if you look at how do Republicans vote for a debt ceiling when they have a Republican president and a Republican House, it's less than that at 65%. So we surpassed all expectations. So if you want to measure the bill based upon that, he achieved more than we've been able to do in the past. And I think that's reflective about what's in the bill. And if you want to talk about different members, you can look at who. Now, what Democrats voted against the bill? Democrats normally vote for uh, debt ceilings, regardless what's in the bill. But Bernie Sanders and AOC did not. So they, they didn't just vote against the bill. They argued against the bill. They said it was detrimental. They said work requirements were a red line, but they ended up voting for it. They said they would never do anything on IRS agents, and they gave up more than $21 billion. That was already in law, and they reversed course. This is a president who had to sign that. They said they didn't want to give up the COVID money. They did. They are now always in the past going dollar for dollar with defense and non-defense. And now non-defense is below 22 levels. And they voted for that and now signed it into law. So now the Democrats are on record doing things they never said they would do, especially at the beginning of this negotiation. I've seen uh, some polls, and I think you got, I don't know, they, they, they were actually crowing you got a 10% bump. To, to 50% approval, 39% um, disapproval, I, that's like, that would be the envy of most current uh, politicos. I, I'm wondering whether this puts to bed uh, any, of, any future challenges for you 
from the from Freedom Caucus members. Do you feel like you feel like at this point you've I wouldn't say vanquished uh, some of that, but are they just laying in wait for the next fight? Are they still there? Are they still waiting for you? And I'm also wondering, did they really want to vote no? Would they have voted no if it would have caused the default? Would they have gone all the way uh, to, to, the, to the end and, and, and defaulted because of, they didn't get everything they wanted in terms of spending? And if so, is, if, is that contingent of the Republican Party a real problem in terms of how divisive politics are right now? I mean, no one really wanted to get there. Did they, Speaker? Or did they? Look, I, look, I believe at the end of the day, you can be a conservative, you can govern. I want to show the American people wh how conservatives will govern. And I think this is a prime example. But there are members who would never vote for anything. There are some members who say they want to make a motion to vacate against me, but they didn't even vote for limit, save, grow. So I'm not sure what they wanted to achieve. Did they want to go into default or did they have the same position as Democrats? They wanted the debt limit to be raised with no reforms because that were the only two options that we had moving forward. They ha they're entitled to their position, but I don't think that position is right. Um, I like the idea of debate. I like the idea of people having different opinions, but at the end of the day, you have to govern, and I hope the American people watched. The Democrats st would stake out a position that to just raise the debt limit. I do not believe that was correct. Uh, I spent every single day from February forward saying, let's negotiate in good faith. When they didn't want to negotiate, we passed our own bill. They got us to the table and we showed we can govern and put us on a better path. Think about how much better the bill could be if we had the Senate and the presidency as well. And that's there an are, example I want to lay out for the 24 election. Democrats are talking about some ways to make sure this doesn't happen again, I guess. I, I would think until there's a Republican president <laughs> and he wants to do something, and a Republican Senate, and, then, and at that point they might do the same thing. But was it a bad precedent? Is it bad to, to hold, uh, the, you know, the the debt ceiling, for lack of a better term, to hold the country hostage in terms of defaulting on its debt to get what you want? Or do you expect the Democrats to do this next time they're in, in a similar position? Well, it's not to get something I want. It's to curve our runaway spending. I mean, think for one moment. Is this a revenue or a spending problem? The 50-year average, we bring in 17% of GDP. We're about 20%. Only two times in modern history have we ever brought in this much revenue, in 1944 and the year 2000. Normally, in a 50-year average, we spend around 21% of GDP. We're over 24. Uh, we, this is the most amount of debt we ever had. So it's not about getting something I want. It's about changing the course that America is on in a very bad path. We shouldn't have to go to the debt ceiling and do it because you can't look at the entire budget. That's why I'm moving forward. I don't want to wait till 25 to deal with our debt. I'm going to put together a commission, a little like studying it right now, what we did after World War II when we were at this percentage. Let's look at places that there's duplication in every single department of America. Let's look at areas that we can start doing this on a bipartisan basis, eliminating waste that we have, but also curving um, our expenditures in places that we know is not right. Are there ways we can do that together so there won't be a problem? That's a better way to handle the debt ceiling challenge instead of the only avenue that you have to curve the spending and out of control that we have currently. When, when does the third rail, the, the entitlement rail, when does that become front and center? Is the, the clock is ticking there as well? Neither party 
really seems to want to touch it at this point. I mean, the, the last Republican president took it off the table. I think you took it off the table in these negotiations. It, it, can we take it off the table forever? Well, you can't, because if you look in the 10-year window, for the first time in the Congressional Budget Office, 10-year window under this president's budget, you've got three trust funds going insolvent, from the transportation to um, Medicare and Social Security. So they'll automatically get cut in the next 10 years if you do nothing to try to save it. I think both sides should come together to try to save these because they're so important to America and to the future. And you can, if you ignore it, you're actually cutting them. So I think it's more responsible to individuals to sit in a room and find a way that we put ourselves on a path to balance and actually become stronger. Every great society has collapsed when they overextended themselves. We're at a point uh, which I believe is no return. That's why we fought so hard to at least make some dent, begin turning the ship around and prove to ourselves. Nobody at the beginning would believe Democrats yep. would ever vote for what they just voted for or the president would sign into law and reverse course of what, what he had in law already than that he did this week. Exactly. Kind of, a, I mean, I, I don't feel good about much that happens politically, but it's actually kind of a feel-good moment seeing the president arguing that, that your people should get in line, and you arguing that some of the president—it's like, oh my God, what, where, what, where are we? But there, we'll talk about 2024 at, at a future uh, appearance, hopefully, Speaker. I just will say that I, I saw an article. Well, it's from the Daily Beast, but whatever. It says, "Are, <laughs> say, are sane Republicans?" making a comeback, and it was your picture. So, I mean, you know, it, the implication is that there's been absolutely, you know, off-the-wall insanity uh, uh, heretofore, I guess. Uh, but it, do you see what they're asking? Do you think President Trump, yeah. do you think former yeah, it, President Trump is the right nominee? Yeah, but let's put it in reality. If you read that same publication a week before, they would never said I was sane for what I actually achieved. They were saying right. I was mega crazy for trying to think we need to spend ultra, a dollar Ultra less. mega crazy, I believe. Yeah, yeah. You weren't just mega. So, so yeah. I, I think the real answer goes back to an Al Davis. Just win, baby, and then they'll change their perspective. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's worth they fighting for this country. And the one thing, Joe, you know about me is I never give up. So it, it doesn't matter what they write today. I think in the long run what it really matters is who's able to direct the history and they can write their own history. And I think we're on the right path right now. People can show conservatives can govern. And you know what? When yep. we govern, people write good articles about it because truly well, deep down they want better government in I, what they're getting right I, now. I know you've got to go, but... I know you got to go, but it, for the, as far as the Daily Beast, this is as good as it's going to get for you. It's just <laughs> yeah, implying you might pass. not be totally <laughs> insane. So, uh, yeah. Take the win and move on. Thank you, Speaker McCarthy. Thank you. Up next on Squawk Pod, summer travel is in full swing, and it's not slowing down anytime soon. Trip trends and long-term consumer shifts with Marriott CEO Tony Capuano. Even pre-pandemic, you saw this shift away from consumption of hard goods towards experiences. It sure feels like the pandemic acted as an accelerant to that trend and maybe spread that trend across generations. We'll be right back. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. 
But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Joe. Summer travel expectations remaining high. The U.S. Travel Association says more than half of all Americans have a trip planned in the next six months. Join us now to talk more about the strength of the industry. Tony Capuano, president and CEO of Marriott International. I just can't believe how that company's been performing since you took over. Uh, does it have anything to do with the pandemic ending as well, or did you just press all the right buttons? Well, the teams are doing great, <laughs> and uh, travel is resilient. Unbelievable. If there are any questions about the resilience of travel, those have been answered over the last couple of years. Uh, it's extraordinary. The, um, you think about where we were two and a half years ago, and then fast forward, 2022, all-time record EBITDA for the company, first quarter this year, all-time record quarterly EBITDA. And what's really encouraging to me, it's across every segment and really every part of the world. The recovery has been consistent. There's still some pent-up demand for Europe, isn't there? That there is. People haven't, that hasn't really rebounded U.S. to Europe travel completely. Well, it's in the process? Yeah, if you look at, at the airline statistics, uh, demand for airline seats going into Europe for the summer is up almost 50%. I think the statistics I saw is about 46% year over year. What does it compare to pre-2020? Almost all the way back, Mm -hmm. within three or four percentage points. Are people out over their skis? This is what uh, my friend over here, Andrew, is talking about. Did you hear any of the discussion about YOLO? You only live once. People are are just going to spend even if they don't have it. Well, even pre-pandemic, you saw this shift away from consumption of hard goods towards experiences, it sure feels like the pandemic acted as an accelerant to that trend and maybe spread that trend across generations. That was a trend that certainly existed for younger generations. I think now it's pan-generation. And to your point, folks are saying, I don't know when I might get locked down again, but I'm not going to pass on that travel experience. God, don't even say that. We could get locked down again. Don't even... I guess we could, yeah. But, and there's mostly, do you feel like you're seeing this across all strata? Meaning across all price tiers? All price tiers. Absolutely. How and you're not, Absolutely. Seeing any, you're not seeing any step down? Because that's what not we, re- I mean, we keep hearing different people say, you know, you go on Amazon, you're going to buy a 75-inch TV, now you're buying a 65-inch TV. You have, a, you have this happening at all. Down, right. tra- yeah, I mean, luxury down. had all-time record rate performance in 22. We continue to see strong rate growth in luxury. Uh, it's moderated a bit, um, but we're still seeing rate growth in luxury. How, how far out can you see? Do you see bookings to the holidays? Do you see bookings for next summer? Or what's so the- on the transient side, we've still got a rate or a booking window of about 21 days. So it's a relatively short booking window. But use 4th of July weekend as an example. We've got pretty good visibility. And so in the U.S., we see RevPAR up about 10% year over year for 4th of July holiday. That's pretty impressive. Would it shock? I mean, we we keep saying, okay, things are great until they're not. And then it goes bad all at once. If you've only got a 21-day window, like what what would you normally anticipate? Because, again, we look at things like the... You know, the yield curve flashing signs for a recession, it just hasn't caught up with anybody. No, it hasn't. And, I, you know, one of the things that does give me some comfort, 
That 21 days for transient, one of the really encouraging signs for us has been the strength of group business, which obviously books much longer. We talked in the first quarter earnings call, based on the forward bookings and group, group business for the last three quarters of this year are up 26% year over year. So group visibility is quite strong through the year, and that gives us some comfort, and in fact, Based on that strength, we uh, upgraded our forecast for global rev bar to 10 to 13% for the full so year. So that didn't weaken when you saw the bank failures all. or anything else? Not at all. And around the world, how many Marriott hotels open every month, new ones? Well, we'll open between four and 500 hotels for the year. So 40 to 50 hotels a month. Uh, concentrated in, in what parts of the world mostly? Well, the U.S., Canada is our largest market, uh, followed by China as our China. second market. Um, what, China, how, how obviously, is it there? Sorry? Yeah. How is it there? They, uh, like uh, it's meh? getting better. In uh, mainland China, demand is back. We are back to pre-pandemic demand levels, but it is disproportionately domestic demand. As of the end of April, international airline seats were only about 40% of where they were pre-pandemic. So international demand has really only, not even recovered 50%. What's it called, Mid-X Studio? What is that? Mid-X Studio. What so, is this? Uh, just a month or so ago, we added our 31st brand. We acquired a Mexican chain called City Express, which signaled our entry into the mid-scale segment. Uh, we will bring a version of that to the U.S., an extended stay version of that. Uh, the working name is Midex Studios. We've been uh, a dominant player in extended stay with brands like Residence Inn yeah. and Town Place Suites. This is an offering for extended stay, 20-plus night uh, customers. Nicer or not as nice as the Residence Well, house? it's mid-scale, so it's a tier lower. It'll obviously be terrific quality, but at a lower price point. You, uh, on, on the Residence Inn, and, and I'm, you know, don't try and mess with me here because I got some experience with these recently. Uh, and I love them, yeah. I do, but I, I, like the, I, like the great, I like to drive sometimes. I don't care how long it takes me because I got cruise control on my Navigator. But the prices were, compared to a year ago or two years ago, you've raised prices. You're well, not, yeah. How much? Well, rate last year was up double digits. And in a Residence Inn, Average, how much did rates go up in, in the past year? 20. Low teens. Is that it? Yeah. But again, you got to look market by market. If you were in a drive to leisure destination, yeah. they were probably up 20 or 30%. Yeah, it was up like 30%. Yeah. And, I, and you know, I, I understand, and it's fine, and it's what I need, and sometimes it's pet friendly and everything else. So, but uh, I was sort of amazed at how that stuck, and you didn't have any problem raising prices to that level, and it was booked. No, that's exactly right. Barely you know, got, barely got. Compression drives rate, and I think particularly early in the recovery, it was the drive-to markets that saw the most rapid recovery when folks were still a little skittish about getting on airplanes. It was drive-to leisure destinations that led the leisure recovery. So across the board, you, you wouldn't say luxury it, it has, has led the way and is now, is it now declining slightly the well, increases was, or luxury leisure was strong right out of the box um, luxury urban has recovered more slowly um, but luxury continues to be strong as, as I said to Andrew um, our ability to push rate in luxury is moderating a bit um, but it continues to be strong so when you try to hire people mm -hmm. how hard is that uh, 
pre-pandemic in the U.S., our largest market, uh, our run rate at any given point, we might have had 6,000 job openings. Yeah, what do you got? Uh, early in the recovery, we were as high as 13 or 14,000 job openings. Last month, we were down to 5,800. Back to so where we're we were. Essentially back to where we were pre-pandemic. The only caveat I would give you is they're a little more concentrated in the leisure destinations. Pre-pandemic, those 6,000 openings would have been pretty evenly distributed across the country. Here's an inflation question. What, what's your profit margin today? Uh, at the, the house profit margin? House profit level? margin for the company. 30, 40%. 30, 40%. And what was it 2019? About the same. I mean, About essentially so what's that, that, happened. To me, that, that's what I was trying to, trying, trying to get at. Yeah, essentially what's happened is through the pandemic, we identified a bunch of efficient operating efficiencies. Uh, those operating efficiencies have in effect um, been able to be preserved uh, in a way that has offset some of the wage and utility inflation that we've seen. But so you haven't Without been able to capture, increase? you actually haven't been able to capture any higher margin. A little bit, but I'm saying as a result of some of the wage inflation that we've seen and some of the, right. the cost of goods sold inflation. Oh, no, I appreciate that, that costs have gone up. I, I was just, I was assuming, maybe wrongly, that you were going to say that you were able to capture an additional 10% margin. In this, no, you've in this seen pretty significant wage inflation over the last couple of years. Because remember, you had very severe drops in RevPAR right. over the two years of the, the pandemic, but wages were still rising during that period. Right. And so as a result, you've seen sort of this, this uh, stabilization. How much of it is because of operational changes that you've put in place? How much of it is just because you've been able to raise rates and, and customers will pay? A combination of both. More to one or the other? No, I'd say pretty even mix. So if you hadn't raised wages, you wouldn't have all these employees, would you? You wouldn't be fully staffed. You had, you had to induce them. Well, to certainly commit. we've got to continue to offer competitive, competitive wages, of course. Oh, why does OPEC feel the need to, to cut output? I mean, you're, you're describing a world that's, that's going gangbusters. And I don't, I don't see why oil can't hold up on its own with all this demand. What, yeah, what's I mean, it signaling? It's, it's uh, <laughs> to drive pricing, clearly. Yeah, but why isn't it already being driven? It just it seems like with so much going on, it could stay at 80 or, or above with, 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 with current think. output. But it, it's, it's not. It's a bit of a head scratcher, to be sure. Is it? So even for you? All right. What, so you don't know what it's going to be called yet. It's called, why Midex Studios? Because it's, it's like a... Well, often, you know, with 31 brands, one of the biggest challenges launching it's coming up with a new name. Sometimes um, perfecting the idea. You open the suggestions? a suggestions? Sure, you have one? I'm going to think about it. It takes a royalty, though. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. yeah. Well, that, does, that yeah. goes without saying. Could be an upgrade. Could be a, um, I don't know. Could Although I a... like studios. <laughs> That's a good you component. Do. I do. So we've got to come up with some X. Oh, mid-X. What's wrong with mid-X? No, that won't work. So come up with something studios. I like studios. Will you work on this? Becky? This is below my pay grade. Is it really? <laughs> but you're so creative. That's a Barry Diller line, by the way. You're so creative. Um, Tony, thank you. Thank you. Great Thanks for having me. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Well, until the robots come to take them away. I don't trust them. You can tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern or get the very best of our show when you follow Squawk Pod on your favorite podcast platform. We'll meet you back here 
tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 